Good evening and welcome to the History Show on RTE Radio 1 on this week's programme. It's going to be a diversionary attack on Ireland, a pincer-style movement where they can attack from two fronts and the real force will be unleashed on the south of England. How close did we come to being occupied during World War II? We'll hear about Operation Green, the Nazis' plan to invade Ireland. Also... Even though she had recovered from typhus, was painfully weak, she still had within her soul the longing to survive. The extraordinary story of Sister Kate McCarthy, the Irish nun who worked in the French resistance during World War II, was captured by the Gestapo and incarcerated in the notorious Ravensbrück concentration camp. Plus... This is the first time that we have a paper trail saying that the very top people actually knew about this killing and allowed one of their agents to literally get away with murder. I'll be joined by historian Dr. Porigogo Rourke, who's been spending the lockdown solving century-old historical murders. But we begin this evening with Operation Green. 75 years ago, in the summer of 1940, Adolf Hitler's general staff drew up detailed plans for an invasion of Ireland. The Nazis, intoxicated by their military victory in France, considered themselves unstoppable and were determined to press their advance into Britain and Ireland. In this report, Mark McMenamin explores just how serious the Nazis' Irish occupation plan was and whether or not it could have actually happened. We have these books here. What we have are the originals in German. They are military geographical data on Ireland. This is Commandant Daniel Aotis, the officer in charge of the Irish military archives. This one is of west and north coast. They're marked with different notations. As you can see, this collection here of maps was found in Luftwaffe HQ Bavaria. This one is marked invasion plans taken from German lieutenant who's not named. He and I are looking through original copies of Fallgrün, or Operation Green, the planned Nazi invasion of Ireland during the Second World War. In studying these documents, one is immediately struck by the fact that they were compiled and published at a period of intense German military activity. The fact that they were prepared during this period of intense activity in 1940-41 to 41 shows clearly the inclusion of Irish territory in German proximate strategic intentions. Operation Green was a full-scale operations plan for a Nazi takeover in Ireland in order to provide a springboard for future attacks against the United Kingdom. Okay, what we have here are topographical maps that are part of this collection. As you can see, they're in colour, they're quite detailed. They detail the, the geological conditions along from Mizzenhead up as far as Cairnsor Point. In this map, stretching uh, up as far as the mouth of the Shannon in the northwest. According to Captain Iotis, there was a view in some quarters that the plans had a wider scope than similar invasion plans for other countries. So included in these documents are a military estimate um, of Ireland. And uh, the following quote is interesting. Uh, Facilities for landing are in general satisfactory or better on all parts of the coast. The central east coast and portions of the southeast corner are the most unfavourable except where built harbours exist. Parts of the northwest coast with its many islands are also unsuitable. From the point of view of the possibility of rapid penetration into the interior, some favourable approaches present themselves, and then it goes on to list various approaches. And that's quite categorically and unapologetically militaristic language. It's language of, of military planning and, and military invasion. 
There don't seem to be any doubt about that. German interest in Ireland during the war must be understood in the context that Ireland was one of many invasion plans at this time. Amongst others were the United Kingdom and Russia. But just how credible was the threat to Ireland during this period? It's a question I put to Eunan O'Halpin, Professor of Contemporary Irish History at Trinity College Dublin. There were various iterations of German plans uh, to invade Ireland. Mostly they're characterised by being done in haste, by being done with very little accurate information. The danger posed by these kind of plans isn't so much that they would have, could have been operationalised, but that the British would become aware of them and say, my God, the Germans have plans to do this. My God, the Germans have, have sources of information in Northern Ireland, for example, about where are suitable landing sites and all that kind of thing. So the threat of these invasion plans much more lies in the fact that they might become known, particularly to the British, than necessarily that they were operationally feasible. Ultimately, it can be said that the Germans' focus was on Russia and the United Kingdom during this period, and Ireland may have only been attacked as a diversionary tactic. The romance almost of a German invasion and the prospect of it, it sounds exciting. It would have been, in practice, would have been extremely difficult to do. How do you get German soldiers to Ireland? How were they going to fly aircraft, troop-carrying aircraft over Britain? It would have been a disaster. How were they going to get uh, troop-carrying ships to Ireland? There's just no way because the Royal Navy is too powerful. So I don't think in practice there was ever a credible threat of a substantial German invasion of Ireland other than as a feint. In any case, the border may have actually been an asset to Ireland during this period as there were a large number of British troops stationed in Northern Ireland. Speaking on RTE Radio in the 1970s, Colonel Dan Bryan, the then Director of Irish Military Intelligence, outlined just why this exactly was the case. There was an understanding as to what would happen if the Germans came in. It's quite obvious, you see, that there was large British forces in Northern Ireland whose purpose was the defence, not of Northern Ireland, but of the whole of Ireland. But I think there's no use blinking about the fact it's, fairly ge- it's generally admitted now that there was an understanding that there would have been cooperation and that there was some understanding as to the methods and the plans for the cooperation. From the RTE Radio Archives, the voice of Dan Bryan, ending that report from Mark McMenamin on Operation Green, the planned Nazi invasion of Ireland during World War II. And to talk a little bit more about this, historian and author Mark McMenamin joins me now. Mark, the Irish Army's Director of Military Intelligence, we heard from him there, Colonel Dan Bryan, is one of the big unsung heroes of this period. Take us back first of all, to the years leading up to the outbreak of World War II. Did um, Brian see that there could be a Nazi threat to Ireland at that stage? Yeah, well, indeed, Dan Bryan is one of the greatest unsung heroes of this entire period, and he plays a very fundamental role in equipping Ireland to effectively mount somewhat of a decent defence coming up to the 1930s when, you know, the clouds of fascism are rising in Europe. There's a kind of a general assumption in the army that some people aren't kind of with it in terms of the threat of Mussolini and the threat of Hitler. And even in some quarters, there's kind of a nonsensical idea that my enemy's enemy is my friend the germans might help us get back northern ireland you know maybe these guys could be okay and the army is very much split in this and you have to remember that this is 20 
30 odd years after the war of independence and a lot of the guys in situ are veterans of that war so there's this perception there but dan bryan is the one person he sees the woods from the trees. He sees the threat that's looming. And he pens a memorandum, a document that's uh, circulated throughout the Irish Army. And it's called Fundamental Factors Affecting Irish Defence. And this is a groundbreaking document where he outlines very clearly how vulnerable Ireland is in terms of strategic defences. And, you know, you have to look at the context coming up to 1940. Look how easily France was invaded. The, the French Third Republic was weak, you know, and Britain uh, itself was having its own difficulties as well. So, you know, he's very much cognizant of that. He sees what's going on and he manages to persuade people in charge in the defence forces. This filters through to government level and people start taking the situation seriously. And, and very, very important strategic plans are put in place then, modelled on the response to the First World War by the British government. They, they build on that to guard against any oncoming invasion. That may happen. Now, it can happen from many quarters. It could be a German invasion. There could also be a, a preemptive British invasion or, or an American one to thwart a German invasion. So Ireland, in a sense, is extremely vulnerable at this period. Now, the Germans had two varieties, I suppose you could say, of fifth column in place. The first was, and the, the largest and I suppose most significant, was the IRA. But they also had, and we'll talk about them in a minute, they also had a number of spies operating in Ireland. How important a component would they have been of any invasion? Well, the German spies, there was quite a number of them. I suppose the most famous or infamous is Hermann Goertz, who, who was on the loose here for well over a year. They were sent over for various reasons to make a connection and to establish a link with the IRA. Now, at this particular period, the Germans kind of falsely believed that the IRA were this kind of rising force, similar to the resistance in France, a well-organized, formidable force that can rise and aid them, you know, and kind of help from within. But th this isn't the case. Very, They're very disorganized. There's a lot of infighting. There's a, there's various splits. The actual chief of staff of the IRA, Sean Russell, he, he's made his way to Germany and there's a, a guy in charge called Stephen Hayes. And Stephen Hayes isn't exactly, um, shall we say, the best kind of a leader and, and things are kind of ragtag. The German spies are sent over with various communication codes. They use hand-based ciphers. So they write their messages and they can send them out through the post. And, you know, some of these are coded messages are sophisticated enough to beat postal sensors that Irish military intelligence have put in place. So uh, their threat is quite substantial because they are taking account of uh, weather patterns, which are very, very important in terms of planning a military invasion. So uh, these guys are, are, are very dangerous. Some of them are quite incompetent, but the fact that they're there poses a problem to the Irish and the British. And tell us a bit more about arrangements between the Nazis and the IRA. There's a couple of plans that they had in place. Obviously, Operation Green, which we talked about. They also have Plan Kathleen, which is a proposed invasion of Northern Ireland. So, in essence, they're going to use the IRA to create political instability in Northern Ireland. And, and this was main, the main plan that Herman Gertz was sent over to try and help instigate within the IRA. So, to create instability using the IRA in Northern Ireland, to give the Germans the excuse to come in and invade, then saying we're basically coming into free Ireland. So, all these plans, they don't really come to fruition. And... During this period, Dublin is like a microcosm of the war. Uh, you have various active embassies. You have the active German embassy, the active Japanese embassy, and the active Italian embassy. And all of these are being monitored because by this stage, G2, with the help of Dr. Richard Hayes, have broken the communication codes of a lot of these uh, embassies. And they're able to listen in to the diplomatic cables that are going back and forth. And they've rerouted them as well via Washington. So the Allies know what's going on in Dublin. And they have kind of a, a window in to the 
secret diplomatic world there. So Ireland, Dublin in particular, is very strategically important in this regard. And it's through those communications that they learn of Operation Green. And was it the case that the Germans actually thought that they could use Owen O'Duffy, the leader of the Blue Shirts, as a conduit to the IRA? Yeah, well, it just shows you kind of how much the the Germans actually knew about the situation in Ireland here, the political situation. The original German spy or intermediary that, that comes over here is a guy called Oscar Fau, and he comes over here via the hook of Holland there, and he comes over to Hollyhead. He arrives in Dublin seeking out Owen O'Duffy to see if Owen O'Duffy will put him in contact with the IRA. <laughs> so he does meet Owen O'Duffy, and uh, Owen O'Duffy basically gets him to get lost i think as quick as possible but eventually he through hook or crook does make contact with the ira and eventually is brought to a meeting in clontarf with sean russell and the ira director of munitions and chemicals a, a man called jim o'donovan and uh, it's through that connection then that they are able to set up transmitters and um, establish this link between nazi germany and the ira now we heard in the report about how invading ireland would have actually been to some extent impracticable because of there were a lot of, of practical difficulties. But there must have been a feeling of vulnerability in Ireland at the time, at the expectation of a Nazi invasion. Yeah, absolutely. And you have to look at this in the context of a period that this is all is happening. You have a situation where America aren't involved in the war, where Dunkirk has happened, and also the fall of France, you know, the French Third Republic. It was like kicking in a rotten door there. You know, these are huge powers, uh, European powers, and we're a small island. So there's a huge sense of vulnerability. Now, I mean... (laughs) It's one of the great mood points of this period. How great was the threat of Operation Green? It's kind of been established, and when you look back and you listen to what Colonel Dan Bryan has had to say on it, that by and large, this is going to be a feint, really. It's going to be a diversionary attack on Ireland in order to, I suppose, attack Britain, a pincer-style movement where they can attack from two fronts then, you know, and, and the real force will be unleashed on the south of England, on Southampton and, and Dover and places like that, that Ireland is really only a diversionary tactic. But also people are mindful that at this period as well you have northern ireland you know and you have the fact that it's involved in the war as a belligerent Uh, you have american forces stationed in Derry, and you have various british regiments in the six counties you 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 also have a lot of uh, clandestine cooperation that's not quite as well known at the time you have the uh the erin corridor which allowed flying boats to fly out over uh, Loch Erin, over Ballyshannon and Bundoran out to the sea there for the Battle of the Atlantic. All these things are happening. So, you know, history, I suppose, is written after the fact, you know. Perhaps the government at the time didn't want to say how vulnerable they really were, but you did have various help from the Allies on the island of Ireland that undoubtedly would have been brought into play had there been any sort of an attempt at an invasion in the 26 counties. Mark, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Mark McMenamin there. Uh, talking about Operation Green and the Nazis' various plans to make use of Ireland during the Second World War. Mark's book is called Codebreaker. It looks uh, in detail at G2, German spies in Ireland, and of course in particular Dr Richard Hayes and his efforts to break Nazi ciphers. It's published by Gill Books. After the break, we're going to be staying with World War II and hearing about the incredible life of Sister Kate McCarthy, the Irish nun who was incarcerated at the notorious Ravensbrück concentration camp. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. Welcome back. 
75 years ago this weekend, on the 25th of April 1945, the last of the white buses carrying liberated women prisoners left Ravensbrück concentration camp in northern Germany. On board was Irish woman Sister Kate McCarthy, who worked in the French resistance during World War II and since 1941 had endured the terror and cruelty of the Gestapo and the Nazi prison system. To talk about the life of Kate McCarthy, I'm joined now by historian and author Catherine Fleming, who's been researching her story for two years. Cathy, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. So tell us a bit about her background, where she was from and how she ended up in France in the first place. Well, Sister Kate, or Catherine Ann McCarthy, she was born on the 17th of December, 1895, to Daniel and Mary McCarthy. She was their first child, and they lived in a place called Drumminidi, or Drumminidi North, near Drumalig in County Cork. She would always be known as Sister Kate, and she was the eldest of nine children. She had an uncle who was a priest, so I'm not sure if that was her inspiration, but she joined the Franciscan nuns in 1913. She was only 18 years old, and she took the religious name Marie Laurence, and she would spend the first of her years as a young nun in the Great War nursing soldiers and civilians in a little town north of Paris called Bethune. So that's how she arrived in France. Now, the town of Bethune was decimated by the Germans in 1918 and Sister Kate, along with uh, the other nuns, were evacuated. And from there, I know she travelled to Monroe, Louisiana, with some sisters and set up a hospital there. But she actually returned to France just when the country had fallen to the Nazis in 1940, getting involved then with the fledgling resistance movement there. Tell us a little bit about that resistance movement, because there were a number of women involved in it. Oh, there were. That's the amazing point for me. I love women's history. So the leader of the group, for want of a better word, who set it up would have been Sylvette Leleux. And she was a garage owner. Her husband had been shot down by the Germans in 1939. He was a reconnaissance pilot for the French. And she, of course, was upset and hated the Bosch and left her two children with her mother and returned to the garage. And she travelled out to Bethune and to a POW camp that was near Bethune. So Sylvette has the transport. In the camp, she meets Sister Kate, who, as a nun, went out to treat the POWs and the injured soldiers in the camp, and they became friends. The third person in this triumvirate was a, a local cafe owner called Angela Tardeville, and her cafe became the place where the soldiers would find safe haven while they were waiting to get onto the escape line. Sylvette also got the services of a young lad who was her accountant and one of her mechanics. He was only 16. His name was René Seneschal and he was her runner. So he would deliver messages, go out to the camp. Kate would pass him the information. He actually would help bring the soldiers in one of Sylvette's cars to the safe house in the cafe. As you know, the Germans divided France in two and the northern part was occupied, but the Vichy and southern part, you could have travel with a little bit more ease. The aim was to get the soldiers to Marseille and then on in over the mountains and into Portugal. So this little group and Sister Kate McCarthy was instrumental in freeing, helping to escape 200 British officers and soldiers. And from October 1940 then, things begin to change. They're getting a bigger and they actually amalgamate with a very important group in Paris. And that important group in Paris is the Musée de l'Homme resistance group. How do they work together? 
Well, the way they worked together was that from October 1940, as well as moving uh, escapees to Paris, to the bigger group, Sister Kate now began to get intelligence information. She would ask questions of the British prisoners. She would translate all the information, give it to Madame Leleu, and then René would carry that information to Paris, where it would be sent back to England. Sister Kate, when she was captured, she was really, really worried because she had got plans of Calais and Boulogne and the battlements that were set up there. So the small group joined the bigger group and in the end, both parties were betrayed. How did that happen? When and how did her luck run out? The first group to run out of luck, as you put it, was the Musée de l'Homme. All these people, you have to remember, they were ordinary people doing extraordinary things a precedent was being set here. As time went on, resistance became more organised, but these were the fledgling groups. So there was a betrayer within the organisation of the Musée de l'Homme, and René was captured and tortured, and his briefcase revealed addresses and information leading them to Sylvette. Sylvette was arrested two days before Kate. Kate was arrested on June the 18th, 1941. So she was in the hospital and one of her male nurses, he ran down to her and he said, Kate, Sister Kate, there's a guy in the hospital and he has a very strange accent. He claims he's British and wants to get on the escape line. So Sister Kate confronts him and she calls him a spy. She said, you are a spy, you are not British. And he left. He said, oh, I'm Canadian, I'm Canadian. So she orders him to leave and within minutes the Gestapo arrive. They were taken to the local jail and then Sister Kate was put into solitary confinement for a year before her trial. Was she interrogated? Was she tortured? She was. In her witness statement, she just says, I had to endure five very difficult interrogations with the Gestapo. Her biggest worry was that she would implicate others. And she also knew that the Gestapo knew that plans from Calais and Boulogne had been discovered, but they had made copies and these had gotten back to England and intelligence. So she was brought to trial a year, 13 months after her incarceration in solitary confinement in Lewes prison. And at her trial, she was condemned to death, along with Robert Hennigan. And Robert was shot and Sister Kate had a week of worry. Every time the door opened, she thought, is it my turn now? Am I going to be dragged out? And then she just disappeared into what became known as night and fog. And it was known as night and fog because in December 1941, Hitler issued an order, the Nacht und Nebel decree or the night and fog decree ordering the political activists and resistance helpers will be imprisoned or killed. Now Kate along with her two friends Sylvette and uh, Angela became part of Nacht und Nebel from 1942 along with thousands of others they were to disappear into a series of prison camps and concentration camps and Cathy these Nazi prisons and concentration camps were designed not just to destroy people physically but also psychologically mentally as well. Absolutely. She was brought from prison to prison and each prison would go further towards Berlin. In, in all, she made a journey of 1,500 kilometres. She was very lucky in that 
shortly into her prison moves, she met up with Sylvette Leleu, who was, because LM is alphabetical, she ended up in the cell beside Sister Kate. And they managed to talk to each other by banging out Morse code on the pipes. And they came, eventually too, they met up with Angela Tardeveau. The three women eventually made a pact that they would resist at all cost, even if it meant death. So how can you resist if you're a prisoner? Well, you can in very little ways. One time she was uh, employed making shirts for German officers and Sister Kate said she would flush some of the buttons down the toilet. They were meant to make 40 shirts a day. They only made 20. Now, they would have gotten a beating or a, a bit of a slap for that. And then she, what I think was amazing and very brave, one of the last jobs she was given was to make belts for German paratroopers. And she said she unpicked every fifth stitch so the paratrooper would have a free fall. She was very feisty and she had a brilliant sense of humour. These women managed to get through this system by their camaraderie and their love of each other and the idea that they would survive at all costs. Tell us then about Ravensbrück concentration camp. She arrived there, I think, in December 1944. What was it, what was it like? Ravensbrück was the only custom-made women's concentration camp in Germany. And Sister Kate said, we were welcomed in Ravensbrück train station by SS women and soldiers with large dogs. They put us into groups of five and drove us to the camp. They counted us many times because the Germans were never sure of their numbers. They made us wait in the yard standing for many hours. I remember there was a big puddle in the line and women prisoners were standing around it. An old 70-year-old Belgian woman, exhausted and crippled with rheumatism, was forced to stand in that water. As she refused, she was severely beaten. And that was a bad omen. That kind of set the tone for what would happen. Uh, they would be called in the morning at half four, and then they would work a 12-hour shift, either uh, digging sand, unloading coal from carts, or going to the forest and digging up the roots of trees. Thankfully, she was again reunited with her, her two friends were with her and they slept head to toe in the bunks. And Sister Kate actually became very ill. She contracted typhus and her comrades carried her to the infirmary on the door of a toilet. She was very, very ill. She didn't want to stay in the infirmary because in the earlier days before December that she arrived, very sick people would have been euthanized by a white powder. There are people, uh, Mary O'Shaughnessy, in her witness statement, remembers that happening. So over 40,000 women were there by the time Sister Kate arrived. So she recovered from her typhus. Once she could walk, she decided to discharge herself. And then she found out that her two friends were gone. Do we know what had happened to them? They had been sent on a different transport to a concentration camp called Mathausen. And Sister Kate said she was immensely lonely. It was very hard to bear. I had to put myself together, hold tight and fight with all my physical and moral strength that I had left. And now she was on her own and the selections had been ramped up from early January. There was now a gas chamber in Ravensbrook. It hadn't existed until the January. About 5,000 women would be sent to this before April. And so transports were nearly nightly. And what happened was, and Sister Kate mentions him quite regularly, she says the huntsman. She calls him the huntsman. So on four separate occasions, Sister Kate managed to avoid being selected for the gas chambers. How did she manage to do that? Well, the first time it happened, um, 
She said her legs were swollen, her hair was grey, and this was her passport to death. The huntsman, whom I think, I'm, I'm 99.9% sure, it was the man called Dr Adolf Winkelmann, he sent her to the left, so that meant she was going to have to go to the gas chamber. But it was all done in a very subtle fashion. You went to a desk and somebody gave you a pink piece of paper and you gave them your prison number. But that pink paper, they were told, was to take you to a wonderful place called Mitwerdia. So anyway, when Kate goes up the first time to the desk, the Polish lady that was taking numbers said to her, run, run, go hide, go hide. And she did. On the subsequent times, she hid under beds and she also climbed out windows with the aid of other comrades and they hid her in different blocks. And that's how she survived those four selections. Even though she had recovered from typhus, was painfully weak, she still had within her soul the longing to survive. And Sister Kate remembers the day that she was liberated and it was on the last bus out of Ravensbrook. And she's brought to Malmo in Sweden, extremely malnourished. She weighs little more than four stone. And then when she's well enough, I know she makes her way to Scotland. She goes to her brother, Dan, who's a doctor. I think she discovers at some point that Sylvette Lelou and uh, Angela Tardevaux have survived. But uh, she then returns to Cork. And does she, she recovers in Cork? She recovers her health? She does, but before she went to Cork, she went back to France in 1946. She went back actually to the hospital where she nursed. And that was when she did the interview, which is 30 pages long of her life story from the time she worked in the hospital to her liberation from Ravensbrook. As you say, she eventually went back to Ireland. I know that her niece, Sister Breda, Sister Breda was only a little girl, but she remembers visiting Sister Kate in a farm in Tipperary. And Sister Kate was sitting under an apple tree in the sun and she had sweets in her pocket for the children. So she eventually became Mother Superior of Hone and Home in County Cork. And it was for elderly gentlemen. And she spent the rest of her life here. Um, another niece of hers, she said that Sister Kate rarely spoke about her troubles during the war. And I think this was symptomatic of most of the surviving resistors because Charles de Gaulle really wanted French women and resistors uh, to go back to their normal lives and to make France great again and to have large families. And, you know, I think there was a great sense of shame in France directly after the war because 1.5 million men were captive and the women, although they made up about 10 to 15% of resistance, they were instrumental in gathering the information. So, Cathy, has she been officially recognised by the, by the French government for her role in the resistance? She has, not enough to my, in my mind, because um, I have her trial papers here in front of me, and it said she was awarded the Medallion of the Resistance by Charles de Gaulle. She also received the Palme de Victoire from the British government in... 2014, I think it was, there was a plaque unveiled in Paris in the Irish College and Sister Kate's name was added to that. And it's fitting that she should be remembered because she was an inspiration throughout her life and she still is to women and to Cork and to Ireland. She is a most amazing woman and achieved so much in her lifetime. Like even if only 150 of those 200 men survived and managed to get married and have children, it's like a massive pebble in a pond. 
oh, so many people will have been saved and helped by the works of Sister Kate and her two friends. Cathy Fleming, thank you for joining us this evening to tell us about the amazing woman that was Sister Kate McCarthy and marking that 75th anniversary of her liberation from the Ravensbrück concentration camp. After the break, I'll be joined by historian Porig Og O'Rourke, who'll tell me how he's been spending the lockdown solving century-old historical murders. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. Welcome back to the History Show on RTE Radio 1. The country is still in lockdown and, like most of us, the nation's historians are lying low at home. As a result, my next guest has had more time to devote to his favourite pursuit, solving historical murders and uncovering the true circumstances behind the deaths of those who lost their lives during the Irish Revolution. Dr. Parig O'Rourke is the author of the 2016 book Truce, Murder, Myth and the Last Days of the Irish War of Independence. And Parig joins me now. You're very welcome indeed to the programme, Parig. Welcome back, in fact. Um, now, you've talked to us before about your research, which aims to separate fact from fiction when it comes to how and why people on both sides of the conflict were killed, particularly in the days leading up to the truce in July of 1921. Have you been investigating this subject with renewed vigour over the last month or so? Well, I had a number of files that I had come across doing previous research on my PhD in the, the British archives, and there were things that I had left aside and said, that's interesting, I'll get back to it. And now, of course, like most historians with the shutdown, there aren't any lectures happening, there's no public talks or commemorations. So I have the time to kind of go back and look at these anew and using a lot of, I suppose, digital research online as well, you can get extra bits and pieces of information from the, the period newspapers. And though the three, I think, that you've been researching are Edward Fox, Margaret Kyo and Francis Murphy. Tell us a bit about Edward Fox, first of all. He was a 21-year-old IRA volunteer who was killed mysteriously near his home in Dublin. So what were the circumstances surrounding his death? What have you discovered? Well, Fox was uh, 21 years old, as you said. He was, as well as being an IRA volunteer, he was actually a former British Army soldier and First World War veteran. And on the 19th of June, 1921, he'd been drinking in a pub just across the, the road from his home. It was Corbett's Pub, a hardcore place south dublin and he was walking to his home across the road 29 south cumberland street when he was murdered by an assailant who came up and shot him in the back now the british initially put out a report from dublin castle suggesting that the ira were responsible they emphasized the fact that fox was an ex-british soldier and they stated that he had been shot by quote armed civilians and that of course is british army parlance for the ira but as you mentioned in the introduction in fact fox was a member of the ira the British Army held an inquest into Fox's killing. Coroner's courts weren't operating at the, the time. And this inquest ruled that Fox had been willfully murdered by some person unknown. And they refused to allow the press to report on the inquest, which was quite unusual. I managed to find the inquest report in the British National Archives. And it's clear that the British knew exactly who Fox's murder was because three witnesses stated that Fox had been drinking with one companion just before he was killed. The bar owner, James Kennedy, said that this man had followed Fox into the street immediately before the shot was fired. Fox's brother-in-law, John Dillon, was in the pub. 
who was another ex-soldier, and he saw this man follow Fox outside immediately before he was shot and then run away immediately afterwards. And Fox's sister Mary, of course, who lived just across the road, witnessed the killing and actually saw Fox's companion standing over the body with a revolver and all the people standing around saying that this man had just shot her brother. And it's only when you look at the the British um, report, which was declassified in the 1970s, that the name of this man and his address, they've actually been redacted throughout. So the British knew who this man was, but decided to remove it from the report before it was released. But somebody who was declassifying it messed up because two classified documents were left in the report when it was released. The first was a letter from a British officer who said that, quote, X, which is what this mystery man, Fox's companion, was named as, X is one of our agents, codename GXVMCA. X reported this at Dublin Castle and was told to clear out as he had jeopardised his position as an agent. And this British officer's report stated that General Boyd, who was in charge of the British Army in Dublin, knew about the murder. And he also stated that General Neville McCready had ordered that this man's identity be, quote, locked away. And I also found in that case file a second envelope labelled secret on His Majesty's service. And in that was a slip of paper saying X equals Danny Whelan. And Fox had been murdered by his friend Daniel P. Whelan, who lived at 16 Lower Mount Street. And that piece of paper should never have been released because as recently as 2014, Barry Keane, a Cork historian, took the British Home Office to court trying to get them to release information about informers way back in the, the Fenian days. And the British had ruled that they would never release the name of any informer or agent from any period. So obviously this was a blunder that somebody left this in in the archives. But it's very significant because although we have many claims from all over Ireland that British forces were involved in in murders or assassinations and, and got away with it. This is the first time that we have a paper trail saying that the very top people, the general in charge of the British Army in Dublin and the commander-in-chief of British forces in Ireland, Neville McCready, actually knew about this killing and allowed one of their agents to literally get away with murder. And do we know anything about Daniel Whelan? Do we know why he killed Edward Fox? We don't know why he was killed. It could have been a personal row between the two men. One of them may have known that the other was an an informer. We, We simply don't know. What happened to Whelan afterwards is that he was picked up by the Irish Republican police, I think about two weeks after Fox's murder. And he was clearly unhinged either by the murder or had been unhinged before it. And the IRA, rather than executing this man who they had already suspected was a a spy, they ended up getting him certified as insane by a medical doctor. And he was actually committed to a, a lunatic asylum. He was there for a number of years and was released in the late 1920s. What happened to him after that, we don't know. Now, you mentioned coroner's courts. Why were coroner's courts no longer in session at this stage and what had replaced them? The problem with coroner's courts was they they weren't returning the verdicts that the British authorities in Ireland were happy with. From about, I think, mid-1920, they stopped having coroner's courts because if you take the case of Tomás McCurtain, the mayor of Cork, who was allegedly murdered by members of the Royal Irish Constabulary, I think they returned the verdict that the Lord Mayor had been murdered by British agents sent forward by Lloyd George, and Lloyd George and the British government were guilty of murder. Obviously, 
obviously the British weren't happy with coroner's reports coming out like that. So in areas initially where martial law was proclaimed and then in other areas, they decided to simply stop holding these coroner's courts and to have the British Army hold inquests investigating or inquiries investigating all these. But of course, that's problematic when you have the British Army investigating killings allegedly carried out by the British Army, and in this case, carried out by a British Army intelligence agent. Talk to us then about Margaret Kyo. She was the only woman, the only, well, not the only woman killed in the War of Independence, but the only common Amman uh, member killed in the War of Independence. Certainly by no means a household name, but a very interesting case nonetheless. Yeah, there were about eight common Amman women killed in the period in total. One of them, Josie McGowan, was killed in 1918, but that's officially before the War of Independence um, begins and about six others were killed in the Civil War. But officially, Margaret Kyo would be the only common Amman woman who was killed in the War of Independence. If there was one person who embodied the kind of Republican revolutionary movement at the time, it was Margaret Kyo. She was an Irish language speaker. She was a Gaelic League activist. She was a trade unionist. She was a member of common Amman. She was a suffragette. And she was involved in the uh, ladies' uh, GAA team locally as well, the ladies' camogie team. So at 21 years of age, she was definitely someone who was very committed to the, the revolution. I came across her first in 2016 when I was doing research for my book on the, the truce. She had been shot dead in her home on the evening of the 10th of July 1921, so just before the ceasefire began. Her home was at uh, Stella Gardens in Ringsend in Dublin. And reading the newspaper reports, it suggested that, you know, a British murder gang had been involved, that she had been deliberately assassinated. There were all these talks in the newspaper about black and tan raids in the area at the time. And there was talk of a mysterious stranger had knocked at the door. And when Margaret Kyo opened it, she was shot dead by this assailant. So I published this in 2016, and I was very surprised that the Republican movement, I suppose, over the years hadn't actually commemorated this woman, and particularly with the refocus on women's history and coming to man in 2016, that there hadn't been a bigger deal made of what would, you know, she'd be considered a, a Republican martyr. But it's only after I published the story that members of the Kyo family actually got in contact with me in recent years and said, that's not actually what happened, that they knew this was the story put out in the newspaper at the time. But what had actually happened was that Margaret Kyo's death was accidental. There had been black and tan raids in the area on the night of the truce. Margaret Kyo and her family had been hiding arms in an IRA arms dump, and they went to move them, fearing a raid. One of the bullets fell into the fire and exploded, basically fatally wounding her. And she died two days later, so the 12th of July, 1921, and she was buried in uh, in Glasnevin. And it's only in recent months or weeks that the family actually gave me permission to go forward and to publish what actually happened to her. So that explains why there had been no formal commemoration of her until recently. But I'm happy to say that the National Graves Association put up a new headstone for her in Glasnevin uh, Cemetery just before Christmas. That bears the original inscription, which was on her uh, headstone, which was Margaret Kyo died for Ireland. And there is also a local committee in Ringsend uh, headed by Matthew Ward and Anthony O'Reardon, who was uh, a relative of Margaret Kyo. And their attitude is that they still want her to be commemorated when the centenary comes up, because even though the story of her dying by an assassin's bullet is obviously false, she's still the only member of Come and Amman that we're aware of who actually died on active service. And their attitude is that she still deserves very much to be honoured. 
And I think the press was refused admission to the military inquest into Margaret Keogh's death at the time. So that must have enhanced the notion or the claims that she had died as a result of being killed by a British murder gang. That would have enhanced the, the suspicion, and it's very unusual because her. I went through about 3,000 of these British Army inquest files over in um, in Kew in the British National Archives in London. Many of them, by the way, are now available uh, online uh, if you're stuck at home in lockdown. And if you look at the Colonial Office, um, War Office uh, files, you'll, you'll get lots of copies of these. But Margaret Kew's inquest is missing from those files, and that initially raised my suspicions and made me think that it was a British assassination unit that had done it. But of course, once the family came forward and put the, the story straight, I was happy to uh, correct the error of my ways and misassumptions. Finally, Parry, tell us about Francis Murphy, who was a Fianna Aaron boy, young boy, who was killed. And his killing was blamed for a long time on British forces, on Crown forces. But apparently, or you have discovered that that was not actually the case. Yeah, this is a very unusual and, and slightly complex one. Uh, Murphy was a 15-year-old uh, Fianna Aaron Boy Scout, a member of Countess Markovich's Republican Scout movement. He lived in, in Glan, which is a rural area just outside of Venice Diamond in, uh, in northwest Clare. He was from a, a pretty large family. His father, John Murphy, had been a, a former rural district councillor, and the family were known to be Republicans. Francis and his twin brother were both members of uh, Fianna, as I said, and Francis was shot dead. Um, he was sitting at home in his kitchen, reading by the fireside about midnight on the 14th of August, 1919, when a shot or a number of shots were fired through the window and one of these struck Francis and, uh, and killed him dead. Now, there were still coroner courts operating at this time because, again, this is about six months before the murder of McCurtain. And what happened is that the coroner's court locally ruled that this 15-year-old boy had been willfully murdered by British soldiers. And that was based on the evidence of one key witness, a local man called Patrick Canole. Now, Canole worked on the West Clare Railway, and he said that he'd been travelling to work after one o'clock in the morning that Francis Murphy was shot and that he met three men in British uniform and that one of them fired a shot at him and that they questioned him where he was going. This was taken as you know, evidence that the British Army were active in the area, firing wildly, and that they must have targeted the Murphy family because they were Republicans. The problem with this is, I discovered using help from other historians and some uh, research uh, newspapers online, in particular um, Owen Shanahan and people were very helpful to me, that Canole admitted committing perjury some time later. And in March of 1920, he was actually arrested and he was put into Wormwood Scrubs prison and given three months for a conspiracy to murder. What had happened was Canole had agreed to give perjured evidence in return for assistance in killing his boss who was having a row with on the West Clare Railway. Needless to say, that plan fell apart. But what all this relates to is that the Murphy family were related through marriage to Michael Nyland. In 1913, this man Nyland had married into the McGann family and he had uh, basically gained through that marriage his new wife's farm. And there was a lot of bad blood about this in the area. There were horses uh, shot, there were cattle maimed, there was hay burned. There was basically a six-year campaign of intimidation 
against um, Murphy's relative, this man, Michael Nyland. It got so bad that eventually by 1919, Michael Nyland had uh, round the clock RIC protection. And there were actually three different assassination attempts on his life. On one occasion, he was shot by would-be assassins as he was walking to mass with an RIC escort. So in 1919, the Nyland family was still being boycotted and Francis Murphy's father helped him on the farm. And it's for that reason that shots were fired uh, attacking the, uh, the Murphy home. Now, this was clearly meant as intimidation, but obviously killed Francis Murphy by accident. And again, this was a very unusual case in that you would think that the, the killing, uh, the murder, as it was ruled by a, a British court, that the murder of a 15-year-old boy by uh, British soldiers would be considered a cause celebre for Republican propaganda. But after a few weeks, Sinn Féin stopped using it as propaganda. There had been money raised and plans were put forward for a a monument um, in honour of Francis Murphy. And again, that was dropped. And there was no popular commemoration of of Francis Murphy. There was no GA club named after him, no Sinn Féin coming or Fianna Fáil coming. And there was no songs ever written about this young supposed Republican martyr. It basically became obvious to me when I read uh, the background of the the newspapers and uh, read the whole agrarian background to this, that this was the reason why he hadn't been commemorated in that fashion. And when I did uh, publish it, I actually was contacted by some local people from the area and some distant relatives of the the Murphy family who said to me that uh, they were quite happy that I had put forward what they claimed they always knew was the, the truth about the killing, that it wasn't political, it was agrarian. So I think all these cases, whether it's Francis Murphy, Edward Fox or Margaret Kyo, it just tells us that you have to do a lot of digging into the, the context of any of these killings and that things in the War of Independence aren't always uh, as they seem when you read them first in the, the press reports or in IRA veteran reports. Well, keep digging, Porik. Uh, great work reopening and investigating these uh, historical, as you'd call them, cold cases. And as you say, it goes to show when it comes to our history, there's a lot to discover and to reassess as the decade of centenaries rolls on. Uh, once again, Porik O'Rourke's book is called Truce, Murder, Myth and the Last Days of the Irish War of Independence. And that is published by Mercier Press. Porik, many thanks for joining us on the History Show this evening. Thank you, Miles. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. Our researcher is Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Logan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.